So we're in a sermon series on the book of Genesis. We've been going through uh, the first chapter, and now we're into chapter two, looking at the seventh day of the creation week. In fact, the day that, that God rested, he's now finished all the work that he's done in the first six days. And as we look at the first six days of creation, we recognize that it took a while to get through there, not because the text was difficult to understand, but because there's so many objections that we have in our day and age and cries that evolution and science have, have proven the Genesis record as wrong and inferior. And, and unless we get with the times and, and really um, abandon this traditional and, and literal normal reading of Genesis 1, then Christianity is going to be lost. And so we had to spend time dealing with those controversies and objections and recognize that Scripture is not pitted against science, but rather those two things go together. Science is God's natural revelation. Scripture, God's special revelation. Both of these things are revelation from God and testify to God creating this earth in six normal days just thousands of years ago. What we're going to look at now is in chapter two, got the seventh day. Now we might think that the, the controversy is over, although the controversy on these verses is somewhat different. Uh, no longer are, are we going to be talking about evolution and science and how do we deal with that in terms of what Scripture says. But in these verses, issues over the Sabbath arise. And is this verse, is this a precedent for the Sabbath to be practiced throughout all time and all ages? By Sabbath, I mean a day of rest on the seventh day of the week how the Jews rested on Saturday. So is that still applicable for us today? What about the Christian Sabbath? What, are the, what about these so-called blue laws that forbid businesses from operating on Sunday? Are they biblical or not? And so we'll be investigating these questions today, but we're going to start with the text and then explore with the rest of Scripture as we seek to answer these questions. So look with me again, Genesis 2. I'm going to read the first three verses again. Thus, the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, looking at these verses, the very first verse starts off with a summary of what God had done. Thus, after the six days were over, thus that the heaven and earth were completed. God had, had formed the earth and the cosmos, this whole universe, and then he had filled it, and he had filled it, and it was called it very good. He says here that the, a host filled the heavens and earth. And so this is the same term that the scriptures use for an army finely arrayed. And so all these animals and all the creatures were all in order and very good, just as God had made them. He's done his creative work on these first six days of creation. In the second verse, then on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So this verse speaks that God had, God now rested and God didn't rest here because boy, those first six days, they were long and hard and toilsome and I need a break because I've spent myself. 
Okay, God doesn't tire. Isaiah 40, 28 says this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't faint. He doesn't get weary. And so what does it mean here that God rested? It simply means that God stopped doing the work that he was doing six previous days, that he, he desisted from his creative activity. He took a rest from his labors. He was finished the work that he had done. It doesn't mean that he finished all of activity. It doesn't mean that he just created the world and then he steps back and just lets it do whatever it wants. No, because we know that God upholds this whole universe by the word of his power. He providentially governs and upholds and sustains this whole universe. So he didn't die, he, he finished completely working. In fact, we know that this work of upholding the universe is given and is described as being part of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he does this. Such that when Jesus was healing on the Sabbath day, on the Saturday, and the Pharisees said, what are you doing working on the Sabbath day? And Jesus says, I'm working just as my Father in heaven is working. Okay? Jesus is still governing his whole universe and his creation. He doesn't stop and take a rest from that. But rather he, God here, has taken a rest from his work of creation. Then the third verse describes God blessing the seventh day and making it holy. That is, he making it holy is setting it apart as a special day from the other six. A day in which God rested from his work taking delight in the things that he had made. Okay? And here we have the pattern of a week, seven days. You know, we, we think about the way we measure time in our society. We measure years. And what's a year? A year is the time it takes for the earth to go around the sun once. We think of a month. Well, a month is, you know, it used to be a lunar month, but it's generally the time it takes for our, our current months for the moon to go around the earth. You know, but why a week? Why seven days? There's nothing in astronomy that would give us seven days of a week. But we, we have a week of seven days because God made the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And so the very fact that we have a seven-day week is a testament to our God who is the creator. And so remember that as we have our seven-day weeks. This is a pattern after our God who made this universe six days and rested on the seventh. Now we understand what this text is saying here in Genesis 2, and then we have questions, implications that come from this. Does this passage, here's one question, does this passage establish a pattern for our work week? Does this, is this passage binding upon us? Must we rest on the seventh day? Is the day of rest prescribed in the Ten Commandments? Is that binding upon Christians? If it is, then why do Christians so often shift that day from Saturday to Sunday? What precedent do we have for that? And if the Sabbath is not for us today, then how do we understand this passage of God sanctifying, making holy the seventh day and resting from his works? If the Sabbath is not practiced by Christians, then how does this passage come to bear to us? And so these are the questions that we're going to look at here this morning. And this is not meant to be just a, a theological treatise. Okay, we're, we're going to 
examine a number of scriptures when it comes to this issue of the week and the Sabbath in particular. And I hope that we're going to leave here not, oh, that was, that was interesting. I learned a few things. No, I, I hope we're going to leave here loving Christ more. Okay, and I, and I want to show you that from the scriptures here this morning. The first thing I'm going to read to you, you don't need to turn there. Uh, I'm going to read to you from Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. As we consider the Sabbath as it unveiled in the scriptures. Nowhere, nowhere else in the book of Genesis do we have the Sabbath being mentioned. We have, we have this rest where God rests on the seventh day here in Genesis 2, verse 3. We don't have it mentioned until later in Exodus when God is giving the law through Moses to the people of Israel. And so we're going to read that command that God gave that he actually wrote on the tablets of stone with his own finger. Exodus 20, 8 to 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath day. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here we see quite clearly the law of God given to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20 calls for them to rest on the Sabbath day and grounds that in God's pattern back on day number seven of creation when God rested on the seventh day and he made it holy. So you two are to rest on the seventh day, not to any work. In fact, you're supposed to do six days of work followed by one day's of rest. That is on our calendar, working Sunday, first day of the week, all the way through Friday, and then resting on Saturday. Clearly, this is binding on the nation of Israel. Now, the question is, well, is there Christian Sabbath? Does this this apply to us as Christians today? There are a few who disagree, a few of those groups that, that, that come to a position on this issue. Uh, one church you might have heard of is called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, I'm not sure if we would call them a church. They follow the teachings of Ellen G. White. And you can look up Ellen G. White, um, a false teacher. And so that's their founder. Uh, but one of, one of the distinctive teachings of Seventh-day Adventists is that the law of God given in the Ten Commandments is an eternal, unchanging law. And so therefore, we must keep the Sabbath and we must keep it on Saturday. We have no right to move it to Sunday. Let's keep the Sabbath on Saturday. In fact, they would consider our worship here on Sunday to be irreligious and sinful. In fact, Sunday worship, rather than Saturday Sabbath keeping, has been argued by some Seventh-day Adventists to be taking the mark of the beast. The mark of Antichrist. Taking a Romanist man-made tradition created by Constantine in the 4th century. Uh, back when uh, Raquel and I knew nothing about Christianity, um, we got a flyer in the mail to attend some conference that the Seventh-day Adventists were taking. We didn't know who they were. We went and we took it in for a few days. Like, hey, that's interesting. And then there's a number of things that didn't really align up with Scripture. Um, and so we ended up not staying there very long. But one of the things that we heard there was to, to worship on a Sunday rather than the Saturday 
And to not take your Sabbath rest on a Saturday was the mark of the beast, the great deception that the Catholic Church instituted in the 4th century. What's interesting today is that many Seventh-day congregations rent out their facilities for churches to use on Sunday. I guess they don't feel that strongly, uh, not all of them anyways. More commonly than this group, there are groups of Christians called Sabbatarians. They believe that the Sabbath under the new covenant in Christ has moved from Saturday to Sunday. They say we must follow the pattern of the apostolic church as the Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday. This position uh, grew to great dominance and influence in the 1600s, has been enshrined in a number of the great confessions that came out of those years, and has really influenced uh, in North America. Uh, there's been laws on the book until recently. Uh, there might even be laws um, in a few states and counties around us that still forbid certain things happening on Sunday because Sunday was considered the Christian Sabbath. And advocates now of this position lament that modern culture has made Sunday common rather than sacred. So they argue that one should not work on a Sunday, one should not go to a restaurant on Sunday, one should not go shopping, go to Walmart on a Sunday. Uh, because when you do this, you're encouraging others to work as well. This day is to preserve for a day of rest and of spiritual worship. Those are two positions. Now, as I want to show you here this, from this morning from Scripture, I want to persuade you from Scripture that the Sabbath, as expressed in the Ten Commandments, is not binding upon Christians, but rather has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like circumcision points towards a greater reality in the New Covenant, just like the dietary laws are no more, just like the Levitical priesthood is no more, just like we don't bring our sacrifices to the altar any longer, those things are a shadow but the reality points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe the Sabbath is included in those Jewish, those Mosaic laws. Now, there's a few reasons that I want to share with you to seek to persuade you that this is the case. Okay? The first reason is this. The Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, the Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. That doesn't mean much to you. Perhaps a simpler way of saying it was God had a special agreement between his people Israel, the nation of Israel, and it included Sabbath keeping. We read already in Exodus 20, the giving the Ten Commandments, beginning of Exodus 20, talks about how this is a covenant between me, God, and you, the nation of Israel. An agreement between the nation of Israel and God. Exodus 31, 16 and 17, listen to this. Exodus 31, 16 says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant, an agreement forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That is, the people of Israel must keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a sign between me and Israel. Exodus 20 verse 12 says this, Moreover, God speaking, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. 
Okay, so the Sabbath is given to the nation of Israel as a sign between them and God. Now, as we consider that, consider that even though God blessed the day and made it holy in Genesis 2, verse 3, that nowhere in the Bible is it commanded to keep the Sabbath before the giving of the laws of Moses, before God gives them the covenant in the desert on Mount Sinai. There is no command to keep the Sabbath. There is no record that Adam, Noah, anybody before the giving of the law, Abraham even, kept the Sabbath. There is this nothing in the scriptures that would command or describe Sabbath keeping before the giving of the law to Moses. And if you notice carefully in Genesis 2 verse 3, there's no command in Genesis 2, 3 for man to keep the Sabbath. This was God's rest. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested on that day. There's no command here for man to rest in Genesis 2, verse number 3. God rested. No call for man or Adam here to rest. So not only do you have an example or a command before the giving of the law of Moses, but neither do we have either before the law nor after the law, a command given to the nations, to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to keep the Sabbath. It was the expectation that the nation of Israel only would keep the Sabbath. If a sojourner came in and, and was part of the nation of Israel, then they were commanded to keep the Sabbath. But they didn't expect the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the, the Girgashites, anybody else around them to keep the Sabbath. They were uncircumcised as well because circumcision was a sign of the agreement between God and his people. Circumcision wasn't expected of the other nations and neither was Sabbath keeping. Okay, so it's not uh, an eternal moral principle for all of mankind based on that text in Genesis 2-3. In the Old Testament, it's agreement between God and the nation of Israel as a sign between him and them to keep that Sabbath rest. Now, what about the new covenant? Because when we have Christ come, we have a new covenant. The Mosaic covenant is fulfilled in Christ and we have a new covenant. No longer is circumcision mandated. No longer as keeping feast days mandated nor sacrifices. And we're going to see no longer is the Sabbath keeping commanded. So the second reason I want to look at here this morning is that the Sabbath is not commanded nor implied under the New Covenant. Okay, so there's a direct command in the Old Covenant between God and the nation of Israel to keep the Sabbath. But nowhere in the New Covenant is the Sabbath keeping commanded or implied under the New Covenant. Now, first we must start with, well, didn't Jesus keep the Sabbath? If Jesus is the initiator, the mediator of this New Covenant... He kept the Sabbath, did he not? And he did. Jesus kept the Sabbath. He defied some of the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day. There are man-made laws about the Sabbath, about not carrying something or not doing this. And But Jesus defied their man-made laws, but he kept the law of God perfectly. Because when Jesus came, Galatians 4 and verse 4 and 5 tell us that Jesus was born under the law. He followed the Mosaic law. Listen to what it says in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is, under the law of Moses. 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus followed the Mosaic law. He followed it perfectly, including Sabbath keeping. And he did it to redeem those who are under that law, to set us free from that law. That's what redeem means. So Jesus kept the Sabbath because he was born under the law, but yet at his death and at his resurrection, things changed. Because we're going to celebrate in just a moment as we participate in communion. When Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And Hebrews chapter 8 says that when the new covenant comes, it makes the old one obsolete. It's done away with. And so in Christ, in his blood, in the shedding of his blood, in his death, we have the new covenant being inaugurated, beginning at his death and at his resurrection. So how does that impact now the laws given through Moses to the people of Israel. Well, as we consider the New Testament, which is another word for new covenant, we recognize that it never commands Christians to observe the Sabbath. There is not one single command in all the New Testament for Christians to observe the Sabbath. Neither are there any commands nor instructions that would indicate the Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday. We have examples of the church meeting on Sunday, but nothing in all of Scripture saying that the Sabbath has has moved from Saturday to Sunday. Nothing like that. Consider this as well. The apostles met at a church council in Acts chapter 15. And in this church council, they, they went and they met together, these apostles. And these, these were Jewish men, followers of Jesus, his disciples. And Paul was there and Barnabas was there. And so they were there to discuss what to do with all of these non-Jews who were being saved, who were being forgiven of their sins, who were receiving the same gift of the Holy Spirit that they received at Pentecost. What do we do? And then we have this, this faction within Judaism who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they say, well, these, these non-Jewish people, as they come to Christ, they must follow the law of Moses. And this is what they say. In Acts 15, it's, they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So Sabbath keeping would have been part of that. So circumcision, the dietary laws, the sacrifices, the Sabbath, uh, the Levitical priesthood, all of that needs to be practiced by these non-Jewish people who are coming to Christ in the New Covenant. And so what did they say? The apostles all agreed at that council that no such thing would take place. That those in the New Covenant are not under the law of Moses. So no circumcision. No dietary laws. None, none of the impositions in the Ten Commandments were to be placed upon the, people, the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who were coming to Christ. Peter says this to the council. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? That is, in Christ, we are not under the law of Moses. Christ bore that yoke for us. So why are you going to put it on these new converts? And so when he says, then that, well, just tell them to abstain from 
sexual immorality, tell them to, to abstain from idols and tell them not to, to drink blood. Okay, tell them not to be involved in paganism. That's what they tell them. They don't say, and make sure you keep the Sabbath and make sure you're, you're still circumcised in some of these other laws. No. They're telling them, okay, you don't need to follow the law of Moses. That was the old covenant. We're in the new covenant in Christ. We're not under law, we're under grace. But tell them to flee their pagan forms of worship. That has no place in worship with Christ. What's also interesting in the New Testament, we have a number of so-called vice lists. These lists made up of a number of sins. Sexual immorality, adultery, lying, thievery, murder, jealousy. Some of these sins are covered in the Ten Commandments. And not one of these vice lists include anything to do with the Sabbath. Not one time does Paul say, and they don't keep the Sabbath. It's never in those lists of sins. Never in a warning about breaking the Sabbath. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 4. I read from it just a minute ago and I want you to turn there. As you're finding Galatians, what's going on in the book of Galatians is Paul is dealing with the same issues that the Jerusalem council dealt with. We have a group of Jewish people called the Judaizers that said, yeah, you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to follow the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep holy days. You need to abstain from certain kinds of food. And so Paul here is arguing nonsense and so I want you to read his, I want you to follow along his argument as I read in Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11. Galatians 4, he says, again, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to them and to us. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You know, it's the sin and idolatry and paganism and religious ritual that does not save. Verse number four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And how do we know he's talking about Mosaic law there? Because he's going on about circumcision. And he's going to go on about days here in just a moment. He's talking about the Mosaic law. Verse number six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you're not under the bondage of the law. You're now sons. And he continues, verse number eight. Formerly, now to these Gentile believers, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God. 
or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become or slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul here in the context of his letter is not saying that they're going back to paganism, the pagan feasts and festivals and idolatry. They're going back to Judaism. They're being deceived by the Judaizers who are adding on the law of Moses to follow in addition to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here says, have nothing to do with it unless I've labored in vain, unless you've really missed the gospel. So there we have an example of don't go back to those observance of days, months, seasons, and years, the yearly festivals, the seasons of new moons, and of days, the Sabbaths. Next, I want you to turn to the book of Colossians. So turn to the right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, I want to read verse 16 and 17. These Judaizers would follow Paul around. They considered Paul to be against the law. And so they followed him and sought to influence the church to follow the law of Moses. And we see them here in the city of Colossae as well. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, church, in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, so what he's saying here is, don't let anyone deceive you that the dietary laws, and the festivals, and the feast days, and the Sabbaths are required for you to follow to be right with God. Those things were, were shadow. They, they point forward to their fulfillment in the substance, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't, don't fall under their deception. Don't go back to Judaism. We are in the new covenant. So what does he mean here by festival or new moon or Sabbath day? Some would argue, well, he's not talking here about the Sabbath day, but rather he's talking about Sabbath festivals, like a seven-year Sabbath or other kinds of special days. But the phrase here, festival, or new moon, or Sabbath day, is very particular. It's used a few times, literally, in the Old Testament. Hosea 2.11, in Ezekiel 45.17, and other places. But in these two places, it's used the exact same words in the exact same order. And in the context, he's talking about festivals. Are those yearly festivals? New moons? Remember, moon is the monthly calendar. So the festivals that happen every year, the festivals that happen on a monthly basis or in certain months of the year, and then on the Sabbath, those special weeks or the, the seventh day of the Sabbath. So this, these language has been used in the Old Testament to describe the special festivals and feast days and the weekly Sabbath. And here, Paul, by the Spirit of God, explicitly says that let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink 
with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things that come, but their substance belongs to Christ. It's not just that the Sabbath was an analogy. And so we continue practicing the Sabbath because the Sabbath somehow reflects Jesus Christ in his ministry. He says, no, it was a shadow. Its substance, its goal, its end was to point to Jesus Christ. And just like circumcision is no more, the dietary laws are no more, Levitical priesthood is no more, all these things find their fulfillment, their end, their goal in Jesus Christ. So too, he says, the Sabbath. Now the question I want to turn to is, how exactly is the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ? How is the Sabbath that once was a shadow, how is it now the substance in Christ? What is the true meaning of the Sabbath for us in the new covenant, if it's not a day of rest on Saturday. What is the true meaning? And for that, we need to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. So keep turning to the right until you get to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look here how Christ is the substance of the Sabbath and how the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. And what that means for us. Hebrews chapter 3. This is a longer passage I'm going to read, so I want you to do your best to to stay with me. Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 7 all the way into chapter 4 to the end of verse 13. Okay? Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting here from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be any, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so we've read that passage, and I want to highlight a few pieces from that passage. Remember why we're here. We've seen that the Sabbath was a law given under the Mosaic Covenant. It's between God and the people of Israel to be kept by them. And we don't see this reestablished again in the New Covenant. In fact, Paul says it's done away with. It's a, it's a shadow. The substance now belongs to Christ. So what does it mean that the Sabbath belongs to Christ? What does it mean that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Him? And what does that mean for us today? Two things that I want to point out from this text. First is this. God's Sabbath rest is available to be entered today. Okay? This is one of the main arguments of this text. God's Sabbath rest. The same rest that began in Genesis 2 verse 3 is available for us to enter into today. He uses here Psalm 95, which refers back to the wilderness generation. He says, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, who's that talking about? It's talking about those who died in the wilderness, who would not believe God and go into the promised land. So they would not enter God's rest, they would not trust God, but rather because of their disbelief, they perished and died in the wilderness. He goes, so they didn't enter God's rest. But then he notices that in Psalm 95, as David writes it, he says, today do not harden your heart. This is hundreds of years after the wilderness wandering. So his argument is, if David, writing hundreds of years after the wilderness wandering, is still talking about today, not harden your hearts, well, that rest was not just for them. That rest is continuing, and we can still enter it today. So he's saying this Sabbath rest is available for us today. Let me point your attention back to chapter 4, verses 6. The nine, it says, since, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, in Psalm 95, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, that's the first thing we need to see here. 
What's interesting, not only is the Sabbath rest said to be available, to be entered today, but he uses that same passage that we started with back in Genesis 2, verse 3. That same Sabbath rest pointing back in Genesis 2, 3, which the law of Moses said, because of God's creative work in six days and resting on the seventh, I want you to rest on the seventh day. Now we have in Hebrews pointing back to that same passage and using that same passage. And its fulfillment in the new covenant is different than the old covenant. Not for a weekly pattern of work and of rest, but for a greater significance for us to rest from our spiritual labor and to find our rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. To stop our striving of trying to justify ourselves before God and to enter God's rest, where we rest from our labors, our works, as God did from his, it says in verse number 10. Now, some have concluded that this passage is talking about just future rest. There's nothing to do with us here and now. This is when we die, we're going to enter God's rest. But again, we see so many passages here talking about today, do not harden your heart. Not as in today, if you kick the bucket. No, today, enter that rest. And he says there's some who have entered that rest. Look at verse number three in Hebrews chapter four. For we who have believed enter that rest. So it's not strictly future. This is something that can be entered today. Okay. So I would conclude from this passage, we read it in context. The rest, the Sabbath rest of which this passage speaks of is entrance into the new covenant. It's believing in the gospel, trusting in Christ and resting from our labors. And this Sabbath rest of the old covenant was a weekly reminder to rest as God did in creation and the Sabbath rest of the new covenant is the idea to rest from our labors in the new creation and to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the command given to us is found in verse number 11 in chapter 4 where it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And so this is the second thing I want to show from this chapter. His first argument is the rest is available to be entered today. The second main point of his argument here is that we must strive to enter that rest through faith and continued faith in Christ. That if we disbelieve, we're going to fail to enter that rest. If we don't persevere, we're going to fail to remain in that rest. So he says, here, strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what we see here, and again, using his own example of that wilderness generation, there are some who have failed to enter the rest of God. Through their disobedience, through their unbelief. Look at Hebrews 4 verses 1 to 2. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The reality here that the scriptures point out, and not just here, but all over the place, is that people will hear the good news of God and yet remain in unbelief. They heard the good news, the promise of entering that promised land, to believe God and to go forward and He would give them that land. 
but they did not obey because they did not believe. And we have people today all across this planet who hear about this great God who's created the heavens and earth, who hear about this holy transcendent being who from his own character is full of perfection and righteousness. And compared to this holy God, we are so sinful and wretched that we do not love him the way that he deserves to be loved. In fact, we do the very things that go against this character. We're, we're unjust, we're, we're, we're thieves, we steal, we lie, we cheat, we lust. And if we don't do these things on the outside, we sure as well do them on the inside in our minds. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. And God just can't sweep our sin under the rug. He can't say, well, it's understood. You guys are pretty pathetic, so we'll just let it go. I'll just lower the bar. Because God's standard is not some arbitrary standard that he decides to make up. It comes from his own character. It's who he is. He can't deny himself. He can't deny the righteousness that he is. And he also can't just say, well, you're forgiven just because I'm going to be kind and gracious. If someone did that in the court of law and just forgave murderers and rapists and adulterers, you would point that judge and say, he's unjust. So God is not unjust. He can't let the wicked go free. And so in, in the great plan of God, where justice and mercy meet, his justice is poured out on his son when he bears God's wrath due for sin. And his mercy is shown that he would accept that sacrifice as a payment for sin. And he would allow us to go free because of Jesus Christ and what he suffered in our place. God would accept a substitute in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he patterned the Old Testament, accepting a substitute of an animal to prefigure the great substitution of his son that he would give. And he calls people in light of that reality of what he has done to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin. To turn from thinking that you are the center of this universe. Turn from worshiping yourself. Turn from your pride. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in humility that you might have life. Confess your sin to Him. Confess your wretchedness to Him. Confess that you're under the wrath of God and embrace the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That's what God calls us to do. And yet we see that people can hear that good news and yet fail to come to Christ because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. They might hear all that. I, yeah, I understand. But I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And, then, and we might not confess it with our lips that I don't believe it. We might say, I believe in God. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in His sacrifice for sin. And yet, if we were to be pressed on the issue of, well, why are you going to heaven? Why are you forgiven? So many people who profess to be Christians would say, well, I'm a good person. I, I've, I've, I've helped out a lot at church. I have, I have volunteered. I've tithed. I've been baptized. I've been a church member for many, many years. Are you saying I'm not good enough? And when someone speaks like that 
it shows that they're not trusting in Christ. They're not, they're not resting in Christ. They have not entered God's rest. They are trying to stand on their own merits. They're striving to justify themselves before God. God, have I not done enough to please you? How dare someone say that was not enough? I have done good. I have not done anything terribly wrong. But that's not resting in Christ. That's pointing to her good works. More subtly, we can profess faith in Christ and the teachings of Scripture, but rather than pointing to our good works, we can point to our good intentions and our good efforts. And we can admit, I'm not the best person, but I try hard. I, I, when, when the commands are given to me in the Scripture, I try my best to follow them. I have some measure of success and certainly some failures, but I am trying my best. And when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we hear the call to deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow Christ, to come to him that you might have rest, to those who are striving to justify themselves with their good intentions and their good works, that sounds like the most ridiculous of all laws and demands that God could give. And it drives them to despair and to guilt. Because I'm trying so hard. And Jesus wants even more of me. He wants me to, to give everything up for him. I'm trying my best. I don't want to feel this weight of guilt that is being placed upon me by the demands of Christ. And again, is that what it means to enter God's rest? Not at all. That is, again, striving not to enter God's rest. That's striving to be justified in God's sight by your own merits and intentions and works. I want you to look with me again. Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 4, verse 11. It says this. Hebrews four eleven. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. God's rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is a relatively famous passage that we've heard about the word of God and how piercing it is. But do you see the context of this passage? Strive to enter the rest because God, in his word, in his knowledge, he knows the intentions of your heart. And if you're striving to justify yourself, well, you're not going to fool God. Even if you profess on the outside allegiance to Christ and you, you, you profess to others that you're resting in Him and He examines your heart and the Word of God exposes that the intentions and the desires of your heart is to justify yourselves before God, you're not going to fool Him. All are exposed to God to whom we must give an account. So he says, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Don't be like those who fell by the wayside in disobedience, who heard the good news 
and who did not respond. So the question becomes, what does it mean now? What does it mean to strive to enter that rest? What does that look like? Well, look back in Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. Hebrews 3, 13 and 14. It says, but exhort one another. I'm exhorting you. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So how do we strive to enter that rest? We come to Christ. We come to him. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means to believe in him, to rely on him, to trust in him, to recognize that all of our efforts, all of our best intentions, all of our best works are dung and will not merit us eternal life with God. We are called to despair of our own efforts and strive not in our good works, but strive to rely on the works and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ to come to him for rest. So we strive to rest in Christ, trusting him for deliverance from sin and deliverance from God's wrath that we justly deserve. And then we rest there. We hold fast to that profession. We say the only reason why I would be forgiven is because I'm holding fast to Christ and better because he's holding fast to me. So every day to the believer is one of Sabbath rest. To those who have entered God's rest, every day is a day of Sabbath rest. And we're reminded of the rest we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day is holy to the Lord. We're reminded of the rest we have in Christ. That our spiritual labor, our our efforts to justify ourselves, to appease this God, to, to be accepted by this God are over. We rest in the finished work of Christ. And this, this is what Paul meant when he said that the Sabbath was just a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. This is the great significance of that passage back in Genesis 2 verse 3. This is what the, the weekly Sabbath pointed forward to. This rest that can be enjoyed in the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever because he has justified us. That is the true rest, to rest in the salvation of the Lord. Now I want to, I want to leave it there, but yet I want to tie up a few loose ends that may be um, hanging around. Because what about, what about Sunday then? What about the Lord's day? Is today a special day? Okay, we see from scripture that to call someone to follow the law of Moses to impose on them circumcision or dietary laws or Sabbath keeping, Paul would give them the stern warnings that he gave to the Judaizers that you're tampering with the gospel. And those stern warnings would apply. But what about the Lord's Day? What about Sunday? Well, the term the Lord's Day does not mean Sabbath. The term Lord's Day comes from Revelation 1.10 when John says, I was caught up in a vision on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And Sunday was the day of worship that the early Christians began to practice on. We see this in the book of Acts. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16. 
that they would worship on the first day of the week, not because the Sabbath had moved from Saturday to Sunday. There's no scriptural indication, nor is there any indication in church history that happened. But what happens is they began to worship on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday. And it wasn't a day of rest because they worked that day. In fact, we have poor Eutychus falling asleep as Paul continued preaching and longer and longer and longer. And he fell asleep and fell down dead. It's because he had just been out working all day and now they're meeting late at night. And Paul preached past midnight. Why? Because Sunday at that time wasn't a day off work. But rather, it was a day that they did reserve to come together as a church for spiritual worship. So we, sh- we should honor the pattern that was established in the early church. And so I think Sunday is the best day for us to come together to worship quarterly. There's no reason why we should change this. But it's not the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. In the early church, if you read the writings of the early church fathers, these men who lived just decades after the apostles, some of them even knew the apostles, If you read the writings of Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, all of these men write that the Jewish Sabbath was temporal and ended with Christ and the new covenant. They argue that the Lord's Day is something new. Not something changed, not something moved, but something new with Christ. It wasn't until, as I mentioned, beginning in the 1600s that the Lord's Day descended back into more of the Jewish ritual and the Mosaic-type law and where Sabbath-keeping was imposed on churchgoers and on society. Now, what if someone today still wants Sunday to be their day of physical rest and still treat Sunday like a Sabbath, a rest day, from their labors? What about someone who has, um, in their conscience, feel like they should not go shopping on a Sunday? Or someone who feels that they should not go to restaurants on a Sunday? What would I say to them? Well, I'd point you to a passage in Romans 14, verse 5, which says this. Romans 14, 5. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And in that chapter, he groups days with food laws. And says that there's some who just can't get their minds around Jesus' declaration that all foods are clean, well, that's okay. Don't badger them, and they should in turn badger you. These these are issues that we should not be divided on. So if there are Jews that come to Christ and they still want to esteem the Sabbath day, Paul would say, well, that's, that's okay. You shouldn't be trying to make them feel out of the Christian group because they're doing that, and neither should they say, well, you should be keeping the Sabbath. These are issues that have been done away with, but yet people should be convinced in their own mind and we should not divide over them. But for those who would seek to try to enforce a Christian Sabbath on others, again, the stern warnings of the Judaizers here are applicable. So just to to recap, so what we've seen today as a Sabbath, the principle of God's rest unfolds in Genesis. We see how it is fleshed out in the Old Covenant under Moses. And then we see its glorious fulfillment in the New Covenant in Christ. How we strive to enter that rest by entering the New Covenant, that new and living way, being embraced as citizens of this unshakable kingdom because of faith, trust, and reliance in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I don't want you to leave here thinking that the significance of this text is whether or not it is wrong to go to Walmart after church today. Okay? What I want you to leave here thinking is, have I entered God's rest? Am I resting in Christ? When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you done that? Have you come to Christ? Are you still wanting from this world and from people around you and perhaps from God, his acceptance? Are you still looking to others or to this world or to your job or career or to yourself to get your own identity? Are you still trying to appease your conscience by good works? Are you striving for comfort in a variety of other ways? Are you looking for peace? Are you looking for forgiveness? Are you looking for assurance of your salvation? Are you looking for hope? Well, Jesus says, you need to come to me to receive rest from all those things. Your search is over. The only striving you need to do is to strive to trust in Christ and to enter that rest. So that's what we need to leave here thinking. Have you entered the rest of God? Have you stopped your striving from trying to appease God, to appease yourself, and trusting in Christ? Let's pray. God, as we consider this issue this morning, we recognize that many sincere brothers and sisters in the faith, especially in centuries past, have been zealous for the gospel and zealous for your law and zealous for your righteousness. And yet I do pray that our zeal would not be misguided or misdirected. That we would consider that the Mosaic law has been done away with not abolished. Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law in Matthew 5. He said, but I came to fulfill. I am the end of the law, the goal of the law. The law points to me. And God, may we see that circumcision, the dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, the festivals, the Levitical priesthood, sacrifices, all these things find their consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're given to us to reveal for us the greatness of Jesus Christ. And our response is not to go back to the old covenant. Our response is to enter the new covenant through Christ, the only way, coming to Him in faith and reliance, dropping our sin and coming to Him in trust and then to cling to Him knowing that He is going to hold us fast. Oh God, I pray that we all here would have a confidence rightly guided by the Scriptures and by Your Holy Spirit that we have entered that rest. May we this week consider the greatness of Your rest in creation and the greatness of Your rest in new creation. May we rest in Christ, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.